I am especially allergic to it because in the last decade of socialism, the communist regime in ex-Yugoslavia, when they knew that they were losing economically and so on, this was the last attempt to somehow control explosion. To do, uh, this was again the last attempt to shake the communist regime, to do uh, the reform of high school and university education. And what is so shocking for me is that it reads like Bologna reform. So it's like we joined we ex-communist country Europe and we won. We saw then the most stupid reform, which was due, of course, in these anti-intellectual anti terms. Like, you know, it's really read like the most vulgar nomenclatura communist logic. The idea was we don't need, we don't need intellectuals who just develop their critical thoughts in their ivory tower. We need people who will be experts to solve ordinary people, by ordinary people, lead nomenclatura and managers, no, to solve their problems. And that's what Bologna education is about. They openly say, now, for example, what's going now in England, and this is not a joke, already over 10 philosophy departments were shut down. Their minister of universities, that's how it's really called, the title of the new government, said something pretty terrifying uh, two months ago. He said that the tendency, the goal of these reforms in the United Kingdom is that in the three domains of human sciences, social sciences and art studies, uh, if you want to study this, it is of no concern to the state. It's a matter of market exchange between you as a private individual and university as an agent of the market. It's not part of general education or whatever. So, uh, what's behind it? As one of them, propagators from Brussels, put it very nicely, we need experts. What do they mean by this? One of them, I spoke with him at some round table in Paris, was very open. He said, because this was immediately after, you remember those cars which were burning in the suburbs of Paris some three years ago. He said, look, we had that problem of youth in rebellion burning camps. Here we need experts. We need psychologists to tell us what were the psychic causes, how to calm them down. We need uh, urban planners to tell us how to, how to construct suburbs so that it's easier for the police to intervene. <laughs> and so like, we need, but let me be here very naive, and I'm, I hope you admit here not trying to sell you any Marxist stuff. If you are an honest conservative worried about, now I will consciously use this conservative phrase, uh, the fate of Judeo-Christian legacy, you should worry here. Because the task of this is what? To reduce us to experts. There are problems which should be accepted the way they are formulated by those in power or with money, and we should be there as some kind of a how should I call it, uh, social engineers, again, the Stalinist term, which is very appropriate here, social engineers or social psychiatrists helping those in power to fix the problem with our expertise. But isn't it a minimal reflection shows you that through thinking, not in any mystical sense, but in the sense of 
real, authentic, intellectual questioning begins not by solving problems which others formulate to you, but to start reflecting upon a problem itself. For example, the first question you should ask is, is this really how we should perceive the problem? What if the way you formulate the problem is already part of the problem? So the very way we formulate the problem is already a mystification of the problem. There are numerous examples here that I like to enumerate in my books, some of them even in this tragedy farce stuff. For example, this is more for the United States. It's typical how whenever you mention sexism, racism, it's automatically translated into a problem of tolerance. But sorry, this is not at all self-evident. Like, read, you can find them directly on, uh, on the internet. Read, or just put search through them, the speeches of Martin Luther King, who really was a fighter against racism. He practically doesn't mention tolerance. For him, it would have been humiliating to claim we, <coughs> sorry, we blacks want more tolerance from the white men. No, for him, racism was a problem of economic exploitation of the black, uh, uh, their exclusion from higher education, laws, legal regulations, and so on and so on. It wasn't a problem of tolerance. So the reason we perceive this as a problem of tolerance is, I claim, typical of our so-called post-political era, where more and more economic politics is perceived as something which concerns the experts, we are just basically informed, sorry, we have to do this, that, and so on, in order to survive in today's competition, and so on. And then we have these cultural matters which function precisely like nature, where you can just exert tolerance, like we have different religions, different sexual orientations, so all we can do is tolerate each other. This, again, is not something which goes by itself. That's the first thing to do. Or, obviously, in ecology. I think ecology is today a field ultra-invested by ideology. On the one, these are just two extremes. On the one hand, it's the purely capitalist, but also Stalinist communist, if they still exist, because did you notice how if they exist, they are the best capitalists? So when people attack me, why do you still mention communism? Uh, are you crazy? Do you want back all those party congresses and so on? My answer is a clear one. Uh, 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 they are now your problem if you are for capitalism, because look at the countries where hardline communists are in power, China and so on. They are now the most ruthless, efficient capitalists, you can imagine. Even Cuba is moving in that direction. The only exception would have been North Korea, but that's a very interesting example to study. Because, you know, North Korea is, it tells us a lot about ideology. It's the unique case where the celebration, communist, of the leader turned directly into supranatural. You know what I mean by this? Like, all the celebration of Stalin or Mao was, in some formal sense, of course it was crazy, but in a formal sense was within the limits of reason. 
Like even those who claim Stalin is the greatest genius of humanity, they didn't say Stalin can fly in the air or whatever. No? Incidentally, he didn't. He was terribly afraid of flying. Okay, that's another point. No? But uh, in North Korea, they directly made this step into supernatural. I was in Beijing a year ago, and a friend there showed me a photocopy, okay, maybe he was lying, I have to rely on him, of an of a elementary school textbook for North Korean children, where they say, it says literally, our leader, Kim Jong-il, is so pure that he doesn't need to urinate and to defecate to go now this, I almost have an appreciation for it. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody were to tell you, I don't know, Kaczynski or Trump, so pure they don't have to see them, so that's something nice in it. Okay, but what I want most seriously to say is that, uh, so we have this push towards efficient education, education which serves social needs, which precisely only helps those in power to solve problems, not to question the way problems formulated. But, uh, but just take, for example, racism. You know, you can perceive it in an egalitarian, democratic way, but you can also say the problem is how much foreigners our nation can uh, sustain. The way you formulate problem, a problem can already be mystification. So now just a tiny little bit of philosophy. Immanuel Kant, whom we should not neglect, was, uh, if nothing else, you know that Kant provided the best possible definition of marriage. If some of you are philosophers, you should know this. Kant, the great ethical radicalist, no? You know what is Kant's definition? If you don't believe me, look into his uh, metaphysic, der Sitten, metaphysic of customs. The big book in two parts, not Grundlegungen, not Foundations, where Kant defines marriage as contract between the two adults about the mutual use of their sex, sex organs for the purpose of pleasure. So no sacred union, it's purely, and now you will say this is a joke. It's not a joke, because one page after, Kant quite seriously, he was created by God, goes into the question of if a husband escapes from the wife. Has the wife the right to call the police to bring him back? And he said yes, not because of love, but because he ran away with part of his body, penis, which was her ownership by marriage. So it's as a thief that he should be brought back. Okay. Nonetheless, can be something great. He introduced a wonderfully counterintuitive definition of a distinction between public and private use of reason. For Kant, private use of reason is not what we are doing here insofar as we are out of an institution or if we meet later in a cafeteria or what. No. Private use of reason is for him use of reason which is not radical free but it is in advance limited by some goals which are again determined in advance. So you say, we don't question this, we accept this, we just see how we can best serve this. For example, for Kant, very interestingly, all state uses of reason. For Kant, 
faculty of law and faculty of theology and arts are private use of reason. For God, philo only philosophy and pure sciences, where you can question legal order religions, are, are public use of reason. I like this, like, when you are in a state colloquium about the need for rule of law or religion in schools, you are doing for Kant private use of reason. If two, three people gather in an apartment without any prejudices debating religion, you are doing public space of reason. And this is why I am uh, so proud to be here. Because I think that, you know this big phrase, which conservatives like to use today, uh, we should defend against Muslims or whoever, the Judeo-Christian legacy. Well, I don't like the politically correct leftist answer. No, we shouldn't privilege ourselves, they are all equal, and so on and so on. No, I think we should stop this leftist masochism, where we should always feel guilty. Oh, Europeans, we are horrible, and then you celebrate others, those, I don't know, Indians from India, oh, they have a holistic attitude towards nature, they are so much better, and so on. No, I mean, maybe we should be proud for great things that European tradition brought. For example, the tradition of radical egalitarian communities, where you are allowed to participate in a universal communal space, independently of your particular role in the hierarchic order. This is how I read my God, Jesus Christ, you know. If you don't hate your mother, brother, you cannot be my follower. Of course, it's not the stupidity of, I don't know, poison your father or whatever. I claim that, and some theologists with whom I debated agreed with me, that father-mother simply stand there for hierarchic social relations. The meaning of Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, you have to translate it, is precisely that an egalitarian community where these hierarchic relations are suspended is possible. There is a space outside this hierarchy. This is, you remember that famous scene from New Testament when Christ is with his followers and somebody comes and says, oh, your family, mother, whoever, brother, are there. And he simply says, no, my family is here, and so on. And we know that, sorry to speak such evident obscenities, that Christ loved his mother. So it's not humiliation there or what. But this is so extremely important. I, here I totally agree with the idea that without this legacy of a radically egalitarian community, you cannot imagine democracy even. Because you know, now I will almost sound a Eurocentric racist, you do find elements of this in Buddhism, but it is always linked in principle, only to individual enlightenment. It's like in enlightenment we are all the same. Yes, but in enlightenment you are in the stupid trance and so on. No. The problem is to, not just this, I mean, every rich guy would agree that spiritually we are all the same. Yeah, but who cares about that? In real life we are not, no? But this idea that egalitarian collective is not just some ideal up there, it can be institutionalized, it can be made a form of life. 
This is an incredible achievement. So, uh, you see my point? Till now, at least it worked for me. Namely, when somebody, conservative, starts to talk about, oh, European, Judeo-Christian legacy, our counterattack again shouldn't be, no, you are Eurocentric, what about the Indian wisdom, and all of that? No, our answer should be F, the forbidden word, three points off. Who are you to mention European legacy? Those who today, conservatives, pretend to act as defenders of Judeo-Christian legacy against the mass in death, sorry, but they are the true danger. If they imagine Europe with, I don't know, Heider, who happily joined his creator, or brother is down there, <laughs> Heider, Le Pen, empowering France, and so on. Sorry, but this precisely would have been a Europe deprived of its greatest Judeo-Christian legacy. They are the true danger. And it is here that thinking begins, with this public use of reason, this egalitarian exercise of free thinking. All emancipation begins with free thinking. And not only, like, for example, Islamists like so much to emphasize how it is true, let's admit it, in Koran, it says that uh, your uh, thinking is free, that nobody can, can force you to believe. Uh, uh, Mohammed least is totally open to you. He said nobody should be forced to believe. But the catch is precisely that you should keep this skepticism or whatever for yourself. You are not allowed to transfer into communal link if the, the different, let's say, life practice. Uh, now, uh, but even here, problems are so wonderfully ambiguous. No, I'm not pleading. I mean, I think there are very interesting emancipatory potential in Islam, but also some not so emancipatory potentials. But what I like is how, if you think really with the public use of reason without prejudices, how ambiguous things are. For example, do you remember, maybe you do, it was reported in the media some five or ten years ago, there was a big scandal in Australia where a young woman was raped and the big, whatever mufti, I don't know, okay, the boss of the Muslim community in Australia defended the rapists openly. He said, he used this disgusting metaphor, he said, imagine if someone on the corner of a street leaves a piece of unwrapped meat and the dog comes by and eats the meat. Who would you blame? Not the dog. He did it automatically. You would blame the idiot who left the meat there. And then, of course, he makes this tasteless comparison. It's the same with a woman walking on the street, not enough dress. Blame her. Okay, it's horrible. But I claim it's more ambiguous. Think about it. Uh, isn't it interesting how the presupposition, silent premise of this reasoning, is an extreme denigration, humiliation of men. Only a woman is treated as a proper ethical agent. We men are reduced to some animal population. We are not guilty. You see there a woman, uh, you can do, you, you jump. Only a woman is called to, to show restraint. 
And this is a key feature, very interesting one, of Islam. You know, for example, how Muhammad became a, became a, a prophet. You know that when Archangel Gabriel appeared to him, Muhammad first thought this is the voice of David, and it's his first wife, Gadia, which uh, convinced him that this is really the voice of God, not David. In other words, you have in Islam this very interesting motive that men do not have access to truth without feminine mediation, because they put it that it's only through woman's assessment that you can be sure that what you are talking is truth. Now, there are other dark things about Islam. I'm not trying in any way to, to say it. I'm just saying we should, this is the public use of reason. When you question everything, not in a destructive way, but in this open way. And again, this is the reason why, sincerely, I am so glad, uh, this is why I am so glad to be here. Because I think that precisely what Critica Politicina is doing here is establishing kind of a public space of reason outside official institutions and so on and so on. I think that everyone, not only leftists, should be, everyone should be interested in it. Uh, because, you know, uh, today more than ever, in this situation where we have censorship, but not in this bad sense of censor up there prohibiting things, but it's more ingrained into our spontaneous experience, what we perceive, what we don't perceive, how we perceive problems and so on. Because you remember that example that I gave you tasteless of uh, how a computer projects immediately onto, let's say, a person in front of you. But isn't something exactly like that going on, for example, in racism? Let's say you are anti-Arab or anti-Jewish. You encounter an Arab or a Jew, and how will you react? It's as if your mind projects on him, dirty, plotting, dangerous. This is literally the materialization, the mechanism of, a, of, an ideological, of an ideological machine. So the task today, when everybody tries to convince us we live in a post-ideological era, is not to do some uh, big, intricate analysis, but it's to make it, that's what I always like to do, to begin with modest, everyday phenomena and demonstrate the ideological presuppositions. Let me give you, if also you, like me, are normal human beings who like cinema, no? <laughs> did you see the two big Oscar winners, King's Speech and Black Swan? I think it's breathtaking how purely ideological both are. The King's Speech made me totally depressive. Because I claim that it's a movie about how to ruin an intelligent person. The king at the beginning is intelligent. Why? He stutters. Why? Because he knows that to be king is not serious, it's stupid. How can you take it seriously when somebody is telling you, by God, you were ordained to become a king or whatever? It's clear that his stuttering is not physical or emotional. It's simply a kind of, a, in a good anti ideological sense, common sense which tells you, but sorry, all this is bullshit. I cannot play seriously this so. In psychoanalytic terms, 
The problem is that of symbolic investiture, like can I really assume seriously that title? And what that Australian, played by Geoffrey Rush, uh, Geoffrey Rush uh, language teacher does, is basically to make the king stupid enough to function as a king. Remember towards the end, which is the key moment of curing the king, when this common teacher sits on the king's chair and the king shouts at him, how dare you sit there? And Geoffrey Rush, the teacher says, why? Why shouldn't I? And you, why should you? And the king explodes, because by God's will I am the king. He remains stupid. He becomes stupid enough. He takes it seriously, he is stupid. It's a very depressive message. Uh, uh, but at least, since this is male problem, the king can function as a normal person of authority, which means that you take seriously your symbolic title, king, president, whatever, but you still have private life where you learn whatever. Here I hate even more black swan. I think that beneath this mask of whatever, I don't know of what, did you notice how you have an extremely, it's the latest version of an extremely reactionary idea, which is to put it very simply, while man can pursue his career mission and still have a normal private life, for a woman, she has to make a choice. If she opts for her mission, I want to be singer, ballerina, in this case, it means death. A woman pays the dedication to her public mission with the death. This, as you probably know, is an old anti-feminist idea, that while men can play public roles, for a woman this means self-destruction. You know, usually it's done with singing. You know, it's from, uh, Offen or from uh, Offenbach, uh, uh, Hoffman's case, where the second one, or which one I know, is the one or the third one, I always forget. <coughs> In the opera, it's the, the one who doesn't, who doesn't want to renounce her singing, and precisely, the devil, the bad guy, tempts her by telling her sing, sing, and she drops dead. And to be a little bit ironic, although you know it was translated, I wrote a short book on Mishlovsky, but isn't it a little bit of the same in The Double Life of Veronique? Like, your Polish one wants to identify herself with, ah, ah, you drop down. The other one, the French one, is a good, proper woman who knows woman's role is not to fully identify, you have to remain a warm, private being, and so on and so on. So, again, this is our reality. And now I come to the title that you reminded me. Uh, I hope you know to what I refer in the title. It's a well-known legend, probably it's apocryphal. It didn't happen, but you know this wonderful Italian saying, se non è vero, è ben trovato. Even if it's not true, it's well found. Like, uh, there is a truth in it. The, the idea is that in the First World War, in the middle of it, there was an exchange of telegrams between German and Austrian military headquarters, between Berlin and Vienna. In Berlin, they sent a telegram to Vienna, with us the situation is serious but not catastrophic. You can guess, the Austrians answer, with us it's catastrophic but not serious. No? <laughs> and I think that uh, this split attitude, it's catastrophic, but not serious, is more and more becoming our reality. That is to say, we rationally know 
there is a threat of catastrophe. But in a nice example of what in psychoanalysis we call fetishist split, we somehow suspend, let's call it, the symbolic efficiency of it, you know. You rationally acknowledge it, but you block the efficiency. You don't really take it seriously. Isn't this more and more, I claim, how we deal with, for example, ecology? Everybody, or at least most of the people, uh, maybe your politics doesn't admit it, but everyone knows the threat is quite serious. No, I am not, to be very clear, I am not a catastrophist. I am not saying, you know, in one year it will be all over, you know, 2012. Do you see that horrible feeling? The only nice moment that I liked in the film is the strange celebration of China. You know, when they build those big ships and some only the Chinese can do it. Like, communist China saves humanity, basically. <laughs> this is so. Here, the, the director, uh, Emmerich Roland, has a nice line in his film. Did you see this previous that about global freezing the day after tomorrow? This wonderful, ironic inversion where you can see on Mexican borders Americans asking to be allowed and then Mexico, yeah, come in and so on. Okay, but what I want to say is that I am not preaching any kind of apocalyptic catastrophe. I think that on the contrary, where, when I meet a guy who does this kind of a panic, oh my God, you see it's coming, you know, whenever something happens, like this summer is a little bit hot, and they say, oh, can you imagine what it will be next year, we will all be, whatever. Uh, I claim that this is maybe the most refined way to avoid confronting dangers, because if catastrophe is almost here, then let's sit and enjoy it, no? But of course, they talk so much about it because, you know, it is this superficial logic, even I practice it sometimes, but not with ecology. You know that when sometimes there is a threat of something, you must remember this, we are all probably doing this. You talk, you think that if I talk a lot about it, I can make it sure that it will not happen, no? So I claim that our answer to those catastrophes who claim, who try to warn us there will be end of the world catastrophe, our answer for them should be no, not you exaggerate, it's not so bad, but calm, don't worry, there will be a catastrophe, don't worry. <laughs> because it's almost they're worried that, or whatever, it will not be, and so on. So uh, again, I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is the following thing. How? In what irrational way we are dealing with ecological threat, like in this book, Tragedy Fast, I just made this comparison. There was two years ago in Copenhagen, just before financial crisis, there was a meeting of the G20 in Copenhagen, you may remember, for ecology. With great effort, they promised the money didn't even today appear anywhere. They promised 20 billion dollars and basically they agreed that they will meet again in two years. And this was hailed as a big success, no? Then a month or two later, uh, there was uh, a <coughs> financial crisis. You remember how there, in a week or two, it wasn't difficult to get 750 billion of dollars. Like, it is as if, okay, 
We may be all dead of, of ecological catastrophe, that's not a problem. The main thing is that uh, capital should circulate. No, that's the real thing. Uh, so, also, did you notice another thing? I don't know how much, probably here you don't even care a lot about ecology, but for example, in the United States, I know this is. How, uh, uh, how uh, now that they know that the danger is for the real, they no longer use the strategy, this French liberal economist, he gives so much strategy of dismissing uh, ecology as a kind of a neo-communist trick, like they failed there, now they try to use this to fight capitalism. No, they only claim, you know, it reminds me a little bit of this uh, right-wing, not defense, but ambiguity towards Hitler. You must know this classical line of argumentation, where they say, okay, we admit it. Hitler did some problematic things, like kill the Jews and so on, but on the other hand, you know, trains were on time, before unemployment, uh, he built highways, so it must be balanced. You know, the best answer to this is, maybe you know it, was told to me by Wolf Biermann, this ex-dissident now is arguing there, but he told me that immediately after the event, the fall of communism, he met some East German, it's typically, then in East German you have much more neo-Nazis than in the Western part, some uh, neo-Nazi ecologists, and in a debate he attacked them, but you are for, my God, you are for Hitler, and it's wonderful, terrifyingly wonderful, their answer. You know what they told him? They told him, no, this is not true, we reject Hitler. Why? Because Hitler did some good things, like trying to kill the Jews, to get rid of the Jews. But he did also some horrible things, like all the highways which were ruined. <laughs> <laughs> there is something terrifyingly true. No? So what I am saying is that in this time, more and more, their big powers in the media are trying to play this balancing game. Like, uh, recently I read some articles where the reason it was this one. Okay, okay, global warming. But look at the positive side. Like, the North uh, Pole ice is uh, melting, so soon uh, there will be a direct uh, passage for boats from China across the North Pole much shorter to the United States, so it will make much cheaper all those stupid toys that we are buying from China, you know. Or they said, look, in, in Greenland, Greenland, there was an obscene CNN report, the greening of Greenland. Look, okay, there are some bad sides of global warming, but look, they can again grow vegetables in this type of, and you know what is so sad? This demonstrates that all this is a lie. Is that this type of making it easy, like the situation is catastrophic but not serious, we can get vegetables from this and so on, is uh, accompanied by another, maybe necessary, I'm not a priori opposed to it, but nonetheless by another much darker threat. Uh, sorry, strategy. It's not, again, it's not something that you don't find in the media, but it's again part of this unreported, less reported things. You just have to, no, here I am not this paranoia. I don't think there is a big power hiding things. Everything is in the media. 
You just have to be patient and really read the media. You know that what is the latest thing going on? There are already innumerable committees claiming it, and they know it's very risky, but it's a crazy radical solution. So-called geoengineering. Silently they admit that we already missed the moment to, to reorient our economies so that we will renormalize our atmosphere. So they claim the only thing that can solve us is a direct, large-scale intervention into our atmosphere. And there are already plans being made. For example, the idea is to uh, increase the reflecting power of our atmosphere either by space lenses up there in the air or by uh, uh, or by uh, dispersing clouds of seawater or sulfur high in the air to prevent uh, all those rays or whatever ozone to heat us, no? Or there are already plans of ocean fertilization with iron or some nitrogen fertilizations to, to prevent the, the, the dying of the so, uh, so Again, the tragedy is that it's way too simple to say, no, we shouldn't mess with nature. Of course, it's extremely dangerous. Who knows, you know, who knows what can be the byproducts of this? You know, nature is stupid. There is no mother earth. As a leftist, I caused a scandal when I was recently in Bolivia with this. I was received by the vice, vice president, who is more normal type of guy. And you know, recently, uh, Evo Morales, the president, made a kind of, a, for me, a ridiculous statement, like, capitalism is killing Mother Earth. No? My comment was, well, at least one really good thing that capitalism is doing. You know what I mean by killing Mother Earth? Not, we can do whatever we want by nature, but this precisely is one of the most dangerous ecological ideologies today. This idea that nature is some kind of a mater maternal base which we humans, through our evil, exploitative hubris, disturb and then we have to pay price. No, nature, the horror of nature is that it's neither good nor bad. It's just a totally indifferent, terrifying mechanism full of its own catastrophes. What mother nature? My God, again, my old example, maybe you know it, think about oil. Can you even imagine what kind of a terrifying ecological catastrophe there must have been million years ago so that we have oil and coal? This is all immense amounts of organic life destroyed. So, we don't need humans to cause catastrophes. We should renounce a little bit this inverted arrogance, you know, that we humans are the only ones who can cause real trouble. No, sorry, nature is evil enough, okay, not in the moral sense, but in this sense. So, uh, this is uh, one way of ecological ideology. The opposite way, even more interesting, is, now I will be really evil, usually there are some ecologists at this point, in America, I was almost talking, not Lynch, but I had to <laughs> run away when I said this. Because uh, I said that uh, often we act 
in a superstitious way, like you have a vague bad feeling, something is wrong with nature, with our industry, and then you engage in all these small practices, you know, you obsessively uh, recycle paper, you buy organic food or whatever, and you know, it makes you feel good, you know, oh my god, I'm doing something for Mother Nature and so on. I claim, of course this is not bad, we should be doing it, but let's not take it too serious. Intelligent ecologists are already talking about how true ecological struggle should move from this, what they ironically call lifestyle ecology, you know. You have a house with solar panels, you recycle paper and so on. And I spoke with an architect who told me, yes, but to, to construct such an ultra-modern self-relying house, you spend more energy and so on than burning coal all your life and so on. But what I want to say is that, that when, just be a little bit aware when you are doing this, that it's basically the same thing as, you know, when you watch football in your apartment and then you shout and scream as if you are really helping your team to win, you know, but it's, this is one of the superstitions of our daily life, how this is why we are doing this. You shout, go on, our boys, and so on. Nobody hears you, but that's the thing. And I think uh, this, is, this is the same. It's a kind of a other term, other version of ecological, uh, sorry, of fetishist spirit. I know very well that this doesn't really matter. That more radical economic changes in production and so on are necessary. I do it because it makes me feel good, it gives me awareness that I'm doing something meaningful and so on. Let's be fair, this is where ecology starts to shout. I claim that, why do you really believe that those uh, uh, overpriced, half-rotten organic apples are so much better than good, genetically manipulated apples? <laughs> Maybe, but I don't think we are buying them. We are back then because it makes us feel good. You see, I did something for our environment. Isn't it beautiful to be part of this great solidarity movement of people who care about environment and so on and so on? These are all, I claim, strategies of doing something to mask the fact that you are really doing nothing. You know, because you don't really have to change your lifestyle or what, no? It's just, you know, you spend a little bit more in the store buying organic food and then you think, oh, I did my beauty and so on, you know. It's a little bit like, you know, all those disgusting, because they are manipulative, ads in newspapers. I don't know how much you have that, but in the United States and Western Europe, we have them all the time. You see some disfigured black kid with lips broken or what, and they say, are you aware that for the price of a couple of cappuccinos, if you contribute money to us, you will change this, life, this child's life, no? What's the true meaning of this? It is, we know horrible things are happening out there, but what we make it possible for you is that for the price of a couple of cappuccinos, you can return to your life, really do nothing, but you can feel good, you know, like, I'm really doing something, uh, and so on and so on. So, the question here is the question of implications, of what is implied. I think 
the greatest, and it can be even funny, field of critical ideology today is to focus on what you say or not say implicitly while saying nothing. I mean, here, as you can imagine, I encounter, because I was looking for that, some wonderful examples from cinema. For example, did you see the old Ernst Lubitsch classic, Ninochka? Uh, a friend of mine recently drew attention to an incredibly beautiful, just short exchange, listen carefully, in a cafeteria, where a guy enters a cafeteria and says, can I get, get coffee without milk, please? You know what the waiter answers? Uh, we don't have milk. We, no, sorry, he says, can I have coffee without cream? And the waiter answers, you know, we don't have cream, we run out of cream, we only have milk. So can I give you coffee without milk? Not coffee without milk. Of course, so it's, it's the same coffee. But it's not. Because, you know, what you don't get is as important as what you do get. Let me give you another example, which I really like. It's even better from an old British working class 15 years ago, melodrama with the beautiful actor, Ivan McGregor, one of his roles before he became a megastar, when he was still playing uh, working class heroes, uh, like train spotting, you know. Uh, it's called Brass Off, about minors. But there is a wonderful erotic scene with no dirty words. In any church, I could say those lines. It's, okay, the guy and the girl, they obviously attract each other, so he accompanies her to her house. And down there, she tells him, uh, why don't you come up for a coffee? He says, okay, but it's a problem. I don't like coffee. She answers, no problem, I don't have any. I mean, it's so beautiful. Without any dirty words, it means true coffee, come and... Uh, but what I like is that it's much more, not so much, much more refined, but even much more erotic than for her simply to say, let's get up, let's go to bed, no? Just, you offer something, you take it back, and the result is not zero. The result is ultra-erotic tension, in a way. That's what we need. Or another example of this double negation, where the result is not zero, is there is a wonderful old anecdote, maybe you know it, about William Randolph Hearst, you know, the big bad guy, the American model of citizen Kane, uh, 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 media like Murdoch, 70 years ago, Rupert Murdoch. What he, uh, there is, uh, 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 again, an anecdote about how he had an excellent editor of one of his newspapers, and this editor was a fanatic. For 20 years, he didn't uh, take any holiday. So Hurst came to him and told him, please take a holiday, you deserve it. No, no, the guy said, I am worried. I am worried that I am so engaged in the work here, that if I leave the newspaper for a week, everything will collapse, no? And then, this is my reason. This is what I worry. Then Hurst told him, don't worry, everything is so well organized that if you leave, nothing will change, everything will function. Then the guy says, this is what I worry even more about. <laughs> <laughs> you will notice that you don't need me, not that's that. In this logic of implications and so on, 
it's a wonderful way to subvert the ruling doxa ideology, not by directly contesting it, but just by saying the same thing, but somehow taking away the implication. I'm sorry, but I cannot restrain myself from telling you an old story which I already told years ago, but in Warsaw, not here, I mean, about how, I think this was the late 70s, early 80s, no, even earlier, it was the early liberalism or late 60s, when I was a young student, and we had a kind of a student newspaper, and there were elections in ex-Yugoslavia. Yugoslav communism was not as harsh as others, so it wasn't that the party candidates, which are the only ones usually always got 99%, no, in Yugoslavia it was 80%. But you were sure that they will always get 80%. Okay, so this was the night of the elections, the evening. And we wanted to do something provocative. Like, one guy proposed, why don't we do a suicidal gesture? Simply publish an issue, said these elections were not really free, were fake. And then we realized, but this is ridiculous. First, whom are we trying to convince? Everyone knows that they were not, no? So, a guy, a colleague of mine, came to an ingenious idea. He said, why don't we just treat them, elections, as what communists in power claim that they are, as free elections, and report the way you would have reported on free elections. So we published an extraordinary issue of our small journal, where there were with big letters on the front page, latest results, it looks like communists will probably remain in power. <laughs> Everybody is waiting for and it was wonderful. We were immediately called to the Central Committee, but again, it was serious, I mean, not to attack us. Like the guy told, told started to shout at us, why are you messing here, provoking us? And then we played naive idiots. We said, but you claim elections are free and we just reported that in free elections. And then, so what did we do, Brad? It was beautiful. We, because that nomenclatura guy, what did he say? No, you know that elections were not really free. So he just repeated, he said, don't fuck with me, boys. You know very well what I mean. to sympathize with <laughs> He wasn't even, you know, uh, this is how I was always fascinated by these daily ideological practices. So, let me add to this another story. Maybe you know it, I'm sorry. This is, was my almost experience which was crucial for my theoretical development. When I was in the army, we had I don't know how it was in your army, but in... Okay, you are too young. Uh, do you have now, like in Slovenia, do you have a professional? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay, so it wasn't when I was young professional. It was, so, you know how it is. After one, two weeks in the army, you get that, how is it called, that moment when you really become soldier. You know, all soldiers are gathered, you shout this, yes, I swear, I give my life, blah, 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 and then you have to sign, sign it. A friend of mine in the army refused to sign it. And he said to the officer, sitting there at the table with this big book of where he looks at it, he said, he asked the officer, is this obligatory or not? Are you ordering me to sign? 
The officer said, of course not, this is, uh, you commit your life, it's your free decision. Then the guy said, then I will not sign it if it's a free decision. The officer said, well, if you refuse to sign it, you go to prison. <laughs> so then they thought, and then this friend of mine, it's a historical moment, I have a photocopy of the paper, asked the officers, I will sign it if you formally order me to sign it. And the officer wrote on the paper, I thereby formally order this person to freely sign the <laughs> And you know, it's, I'm not trying to sell you this as kind of a totalitarian uh, trick. This is how all ideologists have this moment of where you are given a freedom of choice on condition, of course, that you make the right choice. And it's always like this. Like, uh, for, uh, like uh, uh, for example, you know, this brings me to another topic which would be wonderful to go into because there you get ideology. Uh, this topic of choices which are given to you on condition that you don't use them. You know, like, okay, maybe you even know it, I'm sorry, my classical example. I wonder if you have here the same ritual. Let's say you are rich, I am poor. You invite me to a restaurant. We all know absolutely that you will pay. But in my country at least, it's a ritual that when the bill arrives, for some short time, I have to pretend, no, 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 let me pay. But we know very well that it's just a ritual. And I know it very well, because once when I was young, it happened to me that the other guy said, okay, if you want, you pay. And then it was horrible, because he didn't have the money. I had to pretend, oh my God, and so on. But what I'm saying is that, you see, this gap between saying it explicitly and implications, this is where ideology functions in our, in our daily life. So where are we today? Oh my God, I, with time, I mean, I just began, you know. <laughs> Let me go a little bit faster, maybe here, so that we don't get uh, lost. One thing I wanted to develop here, along these lines, is uh, first, uh, we are let me return to that ecological example of buying uh, organic food and so on. What makes me so sad is that the logic here, underlying logic, is this narcissistic logic to make you feel good. And uh, it's very sad if you observe the consequences of this logic. <laughs> For example, in the sphere of sexuality. More and more in the West, even passionate love, or even passionate sexual attachment, is perceived as something potentially dangerous. In the sense that, you know, you are too exposed, too open. Which is why, in a typical tendency, more and more in the West, people rely on marriage or dating agencies, and my friend Alain Badiou drew my attention to this. One of these agencies in France made a wonderful play with words which tells the truth. I don't know how it is in Polish, but you know in English, in French also, you, we use the word to fall in love. So, this advert, advertisement of the agency was with our specialists, we will enable you to be in love without fault. 
Die idea is that we be no dangerous moment to know this. Okay, for me at least, that's the whole point. You meet someone, all of a sudden you know you are lost and so on. No danger. You will be told that person is ideal for you and so on. It's really a kind of a return to pre-modern tradition of arranged marriages. I found an agency in the United States where they openly say, before the modern confusion, all those wise relatives, uncles who determined your marriage, had a great wisdom, and we try to resuscitate that wisdom. Now you will say this is just an example. No, there are even trends in cinema which point in this direction. Let me give you two, three, I hope, funny examples. Did you see the last James Bond film, Quantum of Solace? Politically, I would say, as a leftist, okay. My God, basically, James Bond changed the Morales regime in Bolivia from some the big company who wants to control water resources. So politically okay, but did you notice something? At the end, is the first James Bond film without uh, sex at the end. Between Bond and Bond girl. It's just, in a very politically correct way, we have to traumatize people be too much. Okay, they Okay. Uh, now, you will say this is an exception. No. Now, I go really low. Did you see any of these Dan Brown movies or did you read the novels? Did you notice how his last Da Vinci Code, no sex. You have a couple, Robert Langdon, the symbolic, whatever, and that nephew, grand-grand-grand-granddaughter of Jesus Christ, so ago, but no sex. Uh, even the last novel, one of the worst novels of all times, uh, the, the lost symbol, absolutely, not even sexual attraction, nothing, although there is a couple. Even worse, did you see angels and devils? Then, in the novel, there is sex between uh, Robert Langdon again and the Victoria Petra, the Italian scientist. But in the Hollywood movie, there is no sex. Isn't this strange? Usually we are used to Hollywood adding sex to make it more commercial. Now all of a sudden Hollywood is taking sex out. I claim that what is behind this is again this extreme narcissism where even opening yourself up to another human being in this sexually or, uh, uh, or love or only even sexually passionate way is considered too much. You can no wonder a whole movement in the United States now is called Masturbaton. People gather in a big hall, hundreds, and you are not allowed to touch each other, they just masturbate together. And they make it very politically correct. They claim that, of course, when you enter, you pay ten dollars, and all the money goes to some star in Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> so there is solidarity. But I find this so sad that you are there alone in a crowd. You know, you masturbate. You, uh, of course, there is no harassment here because you are only doing it to yourself and so on. I find effectively this tendency, if you ask me. Uh, uh, very, very sad. The mode of subjectivity which we find here. And uh, what makes me especially sad is that even Catholic Church sometimes plays the game. In what way? You know the predominant ethics today is more and more 
the ethics of, as they say in postmodern way, be true to yourself, realize your potentials, and so on. No, here, sorry, I'm on the side of Judeo-Christian tradition, where precisely, and this is, I think, what is so great of our Western tradition, sorry, this is racist for you, I don't think it is, is that in contrast to all those religions of go deep into yourself and discover your truth, what defines our Western tradition is that the truth is out there. Encountering truth is a traumatic encounter. No, it's up. It's painful. Truth hurts, like love. But being faithful to truth doesn't mean be yourself. No, it means go over yourself. Step over yourself. Overcome your singular stupidity towards another transcendent dimension. And I think that now we do a little bit more of at least some kind of theory. This is what Freud means with sexuality. Freud focuses on sexuality not because he is a naturalist and he, 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 and he thinks that uh, sexuality is the natural base of our being. No, no, for Freud, sexuality is the original space where human being, where an animal becomes human being. Human sexuality precisely is not the sexuality of organic instinctual coupling, where you do it just as part of your instincts whenever there is a period of mating. For us humans, there is no season of mating. To be vulgar, we want to do it all the time, most people know. What I mean is that precisely, as very intelligent and the best Christian mystics and theologists knew it, like Simone Weil, sexuality is, if we are talking about, it needn't even have to be love, but, of course, especially love, but also passionate sexual lust. It's like the elementary form of metaphysics. What do I mean by this? You live your normal half-animal life, and then something happens. You encounter someone, and all your balance is ruined. It's the most elementary form of what maybe in Kierkegaard's terms we can call the not religious, but why not? Religious sexual suspension of the ethical. You just have an absolute link, link to an absolute... Isn't this authentic love? I'm now referring to your most elementary experience of love. Did it happen to you to be really passionately in love? It's a catastrophe, admit it. Before falling in love, you had your life, you met friends, uh, maybe the one night stand here and there. You had a nice, peaceful life. Then what love comes? It's a catastrophe. All your balance is lost. You are obsessed by this passion, and so on and so on. And it's clear that some Catholics, predominant, not all, some of them knew this very well, and not just some leftists, theologist of revolution, for example, a conservative French Catholic, whom I appreciate very much, Paul Claudel, knew of this metaphysical, properly even religious dimension of sexuality. Namely, I was always shocked when Catholics are telling me without the goal of procreation, sexuality is just animal lust. I say, my God, isn't it exactly the opposite? That I 
animals to eat for procreation. What makes sexuality human is that you take an act which in the animal logic serves procreation and you make it, as it were, a metaphysical act of uh, assertion of an absolute link to another person. So, uh, again, uh, 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 we should never forget when Catholics, those who don't get it, criticize, criticize sexuality, claim that sexuality in itself is just animal lust, it must be for procreation or whatever. They are not really fighting nature on behalf of spirit. They are fighting a dangerous competitive form of spirituality. And this is what makes me sad. When they claim that sex without procreation is uh, animal, they are really terribly denigrating sexuality. I mean, now, of course, they usually, Catholics usually answer me in two ways. First, that of course we know that it's also sex, a deep sex in itself without procreation can be a deep spiritual experience if it's done in a more spiritual, tender way, like missionary position, your partner into the eyes. No, they mystify the point. Because again, they are trying to, to normalize this absolutely metaphysical, traumatic dimension of sex. It's this absolute commitment, like fiat justitia pera mundus, like I want to have it even if everything falls apart. Every social, uh, sorry, every uh, passion has this. So now, not to really talk too long, I will somehow, okay, now I will do something evil. I will start the debate by asking myself, what did you want to say in the remaining part of your talk? And then I will briefly give you a condensed version. First, I wanted, but this we know, a little bit to go into how important is what happened in Egypt precisely against this cheap multiculturalism, what I find so important in these Egyptian demonstrations is that what we thought is not possible, our is can. In our spontaneous prejudices, our crowds can only be mobilized for anti-Semitism, Islamist fundamentalism or nationalism, something like that. Here we got a big popular movement with which, in order to understand it, we didn't need any multicultural specialists. We were able, it was true Kantian universality. We, in a way, immediately knew what it is about. It's a struggle for dignity, freedom, and so on and so on. And this tells a lot about our self conditions. How precisely when we got what we officially wanted, we were full of anxiety. Which is why we like so much to talk about Libya. It, with Libya, the situation was re-normalized. We were back in open waters, you know, the axis of, of evil, terrorist, tyrant, uh, suffering innocent people, justifying our military intervention, and so on and so on. So again, uh, isn't Egyptian, what ha happened in Egypt, isn't this nonetheless a kind of very naive, but I think absolutely true, proof of, almost I would say, as my friend, very hard to this, Alain Badiou, who is a Platonist, would have put it, 
There is almost an attempt to say something like an eternal idea of freedom, which as a miracle can explode here, there, and so on. There is universality. Multiculturalism is not an entire truth. This is my first problem with multiculturalism. My, to conclude, my second problem with multiculturalism is that uh, it doesn't work. And I think something for which I really got many attacks, I defended, but it was, of course, not in that way, the way it is meant. This Angela Merkel and Cameron idea of uh, light culture, the living hegemonic culture. Of course, don't be afraid. I don't defend it in the sense of, you know, we should beware of not many bustlings, we should defend our Christian legacy, and so on. No, it's much more uh, complex. I think that in our situation, there is something, maybe you know already my line, I developed in the book, very sad that is happening. It should worry every Democrat. Till now, first, my first point, till now there was, let's be clear, one good thing to say about capitalism. It always, sooner or later, after some time, generated a demand for democracy. You have examples, like uh, recently, South Korea, Chile, where capitalism needed, in order to remain functioning, 10-20 years of dictatorship, but then when things start to move in the long term, capitalism was not able to survive without democracy. My first point here is that, and this is the true lesson of China and so-called, what politically people call capitalism with Asian values, authoritarian capitalism, I don't think this holds for China, Singapore, and so on. This should worry you. Not, I'm not a racist against China. I'm just saying this is a universal tendency. That there is a new type of capitalism emerging, which is even more efficient, economically, dynamic, then liberal capitalism and which functions perfectly with an authoritarian state. Look how much better China and especially Singapore, which is soft China, like authoritarian system, how much better they sailed through this economic financial crisis. Precisely because the authoritarian power structure, state structure, was able to regulate much more efficiently markets and so on and so on. So this is the first problem, this eternal marriage between, which sounds a natural marriage, between democracy and capitalism is approaching a divorce. Here we should start to worry. Second thing, we are obviously, as I always repeat, entering a post-political era. In what sense? In the sense that, you know, till now in Western Europe, Democracy usually meant you had two main parties, center-right, center-left party. And uh, then you had some small fringe parties, communist, neo-fascist, whatever you want, but basically the Green Party, but the space was occupied by one, center-left, center-right, social democrats or whatever, and Christian democrats or whatever. Now, again, something new is more and more emerging in Europe. There is a new polarity. It's on the one hand, let's call it a pure capitalist party, a party of liberal capitalism, which is usually even pretty tolerant in abortion, cultural matters, and so on. And then, more and more, the second party, 
is no longer this kind of a centrist, center-right center party, but the anti-immigrant proto-fundamentalist party. I mean, you have a lot of this here, in Poland even. Isn't, uh, isn't uh, 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 your, your prime minister, isn't this basically this pure liberal capitalist party, and then you have this more nationalist, hardline reaction, uh, Kaczynski and so on, and you are here by far not the worst case. Look at, for example, even in countries that we were all celebrating, like the Scandinavian countries, more and more in them, uh, what was once, 20 years ago, just this extreme right, we were all laughing at them, is becoming the only true alternative. So that's the sad thing. Is either this technocratic, neutral, post-theological, however we call it, liberal capitalism, or the only passion you can have is the passion of fear. You, you are afraid. And it's sad how even the left tends to play this card of fear. You can fear immigrants, you can fear nature, ecology, you can fear the big capital, but if you really care for Christian legacy, you can see what this fear is. It has a precise Christian name. It's fear of the neighbor. This is anti-Christian fact. So our answer to those who worry, oh, Europe is in danger, we should tell them, of course, European legacy, what is most noble in European legacy? What you already described, this egalitarian radical motive of a new non-hierarchic type of community. Yes, this is in danger. But you, anti-immigrant defenders of Europe, you are the danger. What is a real threat to Europe today, to what is noble in European legacy, are not the poor masses. Okay, they can be annoying. I have no mercy for them. If, like in Germany, or Berlin, French told me, or Amsterdam, if they try to beat homosexuals, of course, I say, no multicultural tolerance here. Sorry, you have to respect our laws and so on. But let's face it, these false defenders of Europe are a true threat to, to Europe. Because you know what's the problem with anti-immigrant nationalism? Uh, there is one best definition of nation that I know. It's a comical definition, of course, ironic, but beautiful. It was done by a guy whom I don't like very much. He was this enlightened rationalist, proto-racist, uh, Ernst Arnon, you know, the French guy. You know what was his definition of a nation? A big group of people which are connected by a shared uh, uh, lies about their past, hatred for their enemies in the present, and illusions about their future. <laughs> I don't know how it is about Poland, but my nation, Slovenes, are definitely dead. We share the same illusions about our past. Some extreme version of this illusion is it's a popular sub-illegitimate theory in Slovenia to mark our distance from you Slavic hordes that we are not Slavs, we are really Etruscans, you know, founders of Rome, the original civilization. And then you have this crazy linguist, you know, of course, you take a Slovene word with six letters. You change three letters, and you change the order, and of course, what a surprise, you get an Etruscan letter. Uh, well, so or not. Then, we share the same enemy, hate, the same hatred, absolutely. The irony of Slovenia is how this shared enemy, how it changes all the time. 
in old Yugoslavia, it was more or less the Albanians who were perceived as those suspicious people who were, because Albanians had almost a monopoly on ice cream, but it's still stores. So there are all these rumors there, poisoning us and so on. <laughs> then, with Milosevic, all of a sudden, it was nice, in one to month, Albanians became the good guys, and Serbs became the bad guys. Now that there is no longer there is no longer Milosevic, it's mostly Croats that are the bad guys now. Because we have a ridiculous conflict for some literally one, two square miles of border, because something close to the sea, border was defined by a certain river. And then this river moved one two hundred yards uh, north. So we lost that part. But we claim it's Eternal Serene Territory. <laughs> I get to laugh, for example, when some nationalists said, when we proclaimed independence, that the Serene State is a final outcome of thousands of years of dreams. Well, that's a nice mystical theory, because thousands of years ago there were no Slovenes. Now we emerged. So when there were no Slovenes, there were already dreams about. <laughs> what I want to say is that uh, this, uh, we should not, that's crucial for me, we should not simply uh, uh, just make fun of this nationalist logic. What is crucial is to see it as an organic part of the global capitalist totality. Here we should be critical. When liberals are telling you, forget about your socialist dreams, the big struggle today is between liberal forces of freedom, tolerance, and religious fundamentalists. I claim no. This is a false struggle. Not in the paranoiac Marxist sense that they are all the same, but in the sense that it's crucial to perceive how the very global capitalist dynamics generates, generates uh, uh, fundamentalism. Let me give you a clear example. If you are old enough, well, some of you are, you may remember it. In which country is today the synonym of radical fundamentalism? Afghanistan. Sorry to tell you, I'm old enough to remember 40 years ago, 30. Afghanistan was maybe the most pluralist, tolerant of Near East Islam Muslim countries. They had a secular pro-Western king. They had even a very strong uh, uh, communist party, which was maybe too strong, so strong that it took power. Then, when it didn't function, you remember, Soviet Union intervened to help them. Then, United States, through their well-known agent Osama bin Laden at that time. Then, the result is Afghanistan we have today. That is to say, you can see here a country which, in that indistinct pre-global state, was very tolerant, became fundamentalist as the result of how it was caught in the global process. In the United States, you must know it's the same. The key to the United States today is, maybe you know the story, it's Kansas. Kansas is a small American Bible Belt state, which was, till 30 years ago, the single most radical in the left sense American state, like all great movements against slavery and so on started there, already in Lincoln's times. Thirty years ago, today is the most radical Bible Belt fundamentalist 
country. So this is the true enigma. How does the very global capitalism give birth to uh, give birth to fundamentalism? And now, really to conclude, my point here would have been that I don't like finding racism with this liberal multiculturalist ideology. Not in the sense that we shouldn't tolerate others too much. I claim multiculturalism the way in its liberal version. It's simply an ideological illusion. We need light culture, but not leading culture in this Christian fundamentalist sense. Look, the problem is the following one. If you have multiple cultures, this pure model of each culture, its own identity, and then we just need some legal rules to, to, uh, to, to regulate their interaction, it doesn't function. Because uh, in order to have a truly functioning multiculturalism, you need a set of meta-rules, unwritten rules, implicate rules of habits. Habits, not laws, but habits, lifestyle, which regulate how you treat your others. And this is for me a true life culture. A true life culture is the rules me and my Muslim friends, my Jewish friends, my Arab friends, put whomever you want, we all obey so that we can live together. This is the true fight for life culture. For example, it's clear what Hitler did to Germany. Before, in Weimar Germany, they had a life culture which was in a way Hitler was right, but course, in the wrong way, predominantly a kind of a secularized Jewish life culture. And Hitler knew this is the danger for him. So he brutally suppressed it and very efficiently. It's interesting to see how many crucial writers of that time, to call Stich Heinrich Mann, never returned. How Hitler's cleansing of German culture was efficient. It remained. But what I want to say is that you see, uh, our answer, I think, to fundamentalist threat or nationalism should not be, no, 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 tolerance with others, but to actively, should be universalist answer, I claim. For example, with Egyptians today, yes, if you pose it only as a moment problem of culture, then of course we can play this game, do we really understand them, oh, how different they are, but you have their demonstrations for freedom, my God, we know, we can directly identify. The only solidarity, universality today, it's not the direct universality of cultures. This direct universality of cultures is the most boring UNESCO bullshit. You know, oh, this culture is great in this way, that culture is great in that way. I'm not interested in that. The only universality is we fight for freedom here, you fight for freedom there, and you have an immediate solidarity, if you have it, of course, you have always to fight for this solidarity. So again, I, well, my plea is against this leftist masochism. Like, when you say European tradition, oh, you are already in one foot almost in fascism, you know, or in, or in Eurocentrism, whatever. No, we should agree, there are things we have the right, we, emancipatory universal leftists, to be proud about of European legacy. And again, our fight against anti-immigrant racism 
So don't be, yes, you know, we in Europe are terrible, we did so many genocides, we should just admire other cultures, and that is, every culture is dirty in its own way. I don't think we in Europe should feel especially guilty. No, we should, again, as already said, our answer to those proponents of light culture should be, no, we propose a different, better light culture. We should fight for light culture. You have a light culture of tolerance, you have a light culture of intolerance, and so on and so on. The very fact that, for example, another national group is perceived as a threat to your national identity is clearly a feature of the light culture. We have to fight for a different light culture. It's extremely important. We are in the, the right-wingers of claim we are in the middle of the cultural struggle. Yes, we are. Why not? And again, it's not enough to play this tolerance card. We have to fight for a new, more egalitarian and so on culture. And again, stop with this leftist, pseudo-leftist, uh, rather, I would say, liberal masochism. I mean, it shocks me how, how this eternal masochism, as if West European liberals feel good only if they can demonstrate how somehow Europe is always guilty, you know, like in Libya today. Did you notice how boring typical leftist comments are? It's all these moralistic suspicions. Are we, is NATO really intervening in Libya for humanitarian reasons or are there some political economic interests behind? Of course they are, they are always. Nobody asks the question of what NATO intervention, okay, they do ask, but very marginally. For me, the key problem is not should NATO intervene or not. It's what does this mean, and I don't know, know enough. In Libya itself, who are these famous opponents of Gaddafi? Are they really, as Gaddafi claims, I don't believe it, of course, even more dangerous fundamentalists like Gaddafi made that unique statement, which is, of course, a madman statement, you remember, that uh, it's like the, uh, the, uh, the Nazi idea of a uh, Jewish Bolshevik plot that behind this rebellion against him are, uh, uh, are Al-Qaeda and Zionists, you know, like, really the same. But, uh, and if there is a chance that this is an authentic emancipatory movement, why not give them the arms and so on? And I don't care if Europe has economic interest. It's all about, I'm sick and tired of this European moralistic masochism, which is a fake moralism, which is, which is an inverted form of racism. So again, let's be proud. We have a lot to give to the world. Let's proudly do it. Let's brutally fight for our progressive life. I know I was too long, but that's life. Thank you very much.